0: It's Jim. It's the World of Bonds 2021 Outlook Special Edition, as always for professional investors only and never investment advice. So we come into 2021 with 70% of global fund managers saying that we're in an early cycle of the economic recovery phase. Obviously, that means that they're very, very bullish on US equities in particular. Uh, that first stat of 70% comes from Bank of America. US equities topped the Deutsche Bank survey of things that are going to do well in 2021. Uh, fixed income, as always, is going to have a, a terrible year, according to the survey of fund managers. Jim Reid, who put together that survey, said, it's fair to say that in 25 years I've been doing this, I can't remember a time where so few, if any, disputed the central narrative, i.e. that of strong growth, a rebound, equity doing well, fixed income doing badly. And that uh, comes through in the bond market forecasts that we take from Bloomberg as well. So over the next two years, the expectation is that US Treasury 10-year bonds go up from 90 basis points, where they are now, to about 1.6%. Um, and the Bund actually goes up into positive territory over those two years, which seems a bit unlikely in some ways, given the ECB's forecasts that we're going to have a decade now of negative interest rates from the ECB. But, you know, not obviously beyond the realms of possibility. So, you know, we look every year when we come to January at the Fed survey of professional forecasters and going back to 2001, so 20 years worth of data now, every year the forecasts for US treasuries uh, are higher and higher and higher uh, for the coming years over the next two, three, four years. You know, this has been called the, the hedgehog effect of bond market forecast. So just one example here, looking back in 2010, we see that the forecast for US 10 years was that it would double from 2.5% to 5% within the next four or five years. Actually didn't do anything over that period, it moved sideways. And for most of that 20-year period, US Treasury bond yields have been falling um, lower and lower. So the forecast, as I say, 1.6% for two years' time. By 2024, 1.75%. So the hedgehog is alive and well and kicking. For 2021, we start the year with everyone being bearish on bonds, and with bonds having ended the year with lower yields um, than they, they started it. So this has really been the true true for pretty much 500 years of bond market history. And you know, a year ago. Um, If you saw me present or talk about this, looking at something I think the Bank of England put out about long-term bond market yields, taking data from Italian city-states or loans made during the Napoleonic Wars, the two world wars too. It's been a big long downtrend in government bond yields. um, And the past four decades, really, since Paul Volcker took over at the Federal Reserve, have seen that even more pronounced in a way. you know. We go back to the 70s and uh, start of the 80s. Inflation was in the double digits. Bond yields were in the teens. I remember gilts with coupons of 15.5% and, and higher. Ever since then, they've been in steady decline. And as I've Said repeatedly, I think you have to look at the reasons for the very long-term decline in government bond yields and indeed inflation, and challenge yourself to say, "Well, is 2021 the year that that all changes?" And I won't go into these in detail, but you know, there, I think there are four reasons why bond yields have fallen so dramatically over the past four decades, and probably a lot of these reasons hold true for 500 years as well. But the first one is demographics: we're we're living longer, albeit with a blip. This year that will probably take a year off life expectancies for western economies but generally demographic trends have been for longer life expectancy and as people get old and retire they increase uh, they have they keep their savings in cash or low yielding risk-free instruments so that you know government bonds hit the bill really um, don't hit the bill so fit the bill rather when they're in negative yields but at you know very low levels in fact people have to save more in government bonds to achieve their income targets so this desire for safety saving and income as populations around the west um, have aged means that there's a very strong demographic demand for fixed income that's also driven down inflation as well through some other, um, other metrics that we'll talk about another time. Secondly though, technology. Um, the internet, obviously we're all aware of the, the impact of price discovery when it comes to buying stuff for ourselves. We know the scale of Amazon and the tech giants and how they, you know, they can put out um, you know, buy stuff at such cheap prices because they're buying so many of them that then pass on a lot of that to consumers until the point they become an absolute monopoly, and then presumably they'll start increasing their profits at the, at the, the um, expense of us, the consumer. But there's also Uber and the Deliveroo impacts of technology driving down wages um, across the world, too. You know, there's just in time uh, employment. Uh, contracts that people have nowadays so technology has had a benign impact in some ways to the cost of goods that we buy but there have been some second round impacts on the high street and on wages of of workers who might have been employed on the high street but are no longer there or are now forced into jobs where they don't have proper employment contracts as you would have seen in the 70s or 80s for instance and you know I I always look at Spotify too I, I consume just as much Music, perhaps even more than I did when I was um a teenager working in W H Smith, earning one pound seventy an hour for working on Saturdays. Um, but uh, you know, a CD then or a cassette. My dad told me cassettes were the future rather than vinyl. So I've got this. Huge collection of useless cassettes rather than a wonderful uh, vinyl collection. So thanks for that, Dad. But nevertheless, a cassette would have cost me 12 quid at one point, which was, you know, more than a, a whole day's salary in, in, in many cases. Nowadays, for 12 quid, still in nominal terms, not, not inflation adjusted at all over that intervening uh, 30 years. For the same cost of a, a cassette or a CD back then, I can get all the music in the world. And so, when we talk about Spotify being um, evil in terms of how it distributes um, the money that they get from consumers to artists who have had a very lean year, it's actually you know we're not we should be spending more on Spotify. It's it's just way too cheap for for what you get from it nowadays. The third thing, globalization. This isn't just about goods and China joining the World Trade Organization in two thousand and one um and the cheapness of container goods around the world now it's also about wages and globalization means and will still mean in future i think that companies like bmw in munich will say well we'll move to poland or romania or uh, asia if uh, the workers in munich want higher wages so you know there is this globalization of labor that doesn't mean that we go and work in vietnam but our companies can go and work in Vietnam and take those jobs away from uh, developed markets if wages go up. Final thing, central banks. Um, I, I don't think central banks are as powerful as they think they are in many respects. I think Paul Volcker was powerful in terms of setting a new inflation-fighting agenda at the start of the 80s and setting interest rates above inflation rates, which was a novel idea at the time. But generally, ever since that first impetus, you know whether it was... Bank of England becoming independent or inflation targeting being invented by the Kiwis in New Zealand. Perhaps central bankers aren't as powerful as we thought on the the driving down of inflation. And perhaps that means they won't be as powerful as they think they are in trying to generate upwards inflation or in terms of fighting that inflation, if it ever does, make a comeback. So there are some threats to some of these things. I think globalisation is the one we've talked about a lot over the past two years. You know, Trump's trade wars with NAFTA and China. We have Brexit as well um, as a a significant source of friction within the European Union and uh, trade there. You know, tariffs, if we get 10% tariffs on cars, etc., that's going to be inflationary, a one-off shock to the price levels of imports into the UK, similar in effect to a a currency devaluation. And we have seen UK break even inflation rates. That's the market's expectation of future inflation rising quite substantially in December um, as no deal fears grew. The second threat I'd see to some of those four scenarios are that central banks um, move from an inflation fighting mode that they've been in for a long time to an inflation Generating mode, where they tolerate high levels of inflation, actively try and stimulate it either as just to try and hit their inflation targets or more sinisterly as some sort of concerted way of eroding the value of corporate debts and government debts that we 'll talk about a bit later but you know i don 't think his is beyond the realms of Imagination that central banks are going to be less concerned about the inflation outlook for some time to come, and explicitly so in the in the case of the Federal Reserve, who's adopted a new inflation targeting regime in twenty twenty. Average inflation targeting allows them to let inflation be above two percent. Their their old target. For a period of time if it's been below 2% for a period of time. So some catch up and not allowing bygones to be bygones means that you know perhaps the US will to- tolerate inflation levels of two and a quarter, two and a half percent or even more for a period of time. And some people have said does this mean independence is under threat for all central banks after all this time? And I think one thing they have looked at is Andrew Bailey's comments earlier in twenty twenty, suggesting that the the government wouldn't have been able to finance itself without the the bank's QE program. There is also, you know, a, an extension of the Bank of England's ways and means facility, the overdraft that it allows the government to um, run at the central bank. And forgetting all about that, it's just the kind of simple optics of having UK guilt issuance running it billions and hundreds of billions of uh, pounds worth of gilts every year now, almost exactly equaling the amount of quantitative easing that the Bank of England is doing. So these are gilts being issued by the government that don't really see the light of day for private investors. They, they go straight into the coffers at the Bank of England. And you know lots of talk, uh, as we've talked about in the past, around how this all ends up. But Let's turn on to the growth prospects for 2021. You know, we talked about the market forecasts for this being an early cycle stage of the economic recovery. I've seen headlines and front pages of stuff like Money Week, etc., describing this as going to be like the Roaring Twenties. Thinking back a hundred years, um, to you know the kind of um, Fitzgerald era of flappers and uh, Rolls Royce champagne swilling. Um, good times that uh, led to you know, lots of great inventions, a great Bill Bryson book about the 1920s and all the, all the technological developments we had then and societal progress we had. It obviously ended up with the Wall Street crash at the end of the 1920s. But some people saying that the, the, the conditions we have now are ripe for a prolonged period of, of economic growth. And I'm not going to argue too hard against that, to be honest. We've got huge monetary stimulus, We still have fiscal stimulus and the kind of Goldilocks fiscal stimulus in the US as far as markets are concerned. You know, there had been some inverted commas fears that Biden would do a huge fiscal stimulus if he took control of the presidency, the House of Representatives and the Senate, you know, talking about $2 trillion plus of stimulus. But we didn't get the blue wave. He didn't win the Senate. Um, It is possible that Georgia gives him the two seats he needs for a draw and therefore power over the Senate in January. But I I don't think that's a core market scenario at the moment. So we're not going to get the the heavily redistributive, higher taxes for companies and high earners, and very potentially inflationary fiscal distribution redistribution towards the poorest in society. not saying that's a good thing, but for markets, that's, that they're happy that we're going to get some stimulus. The Democrats and Republicans are pretty much getting towards a deal for, say, $900 billion worth of stimulus, but not enough to worry the inflationistas that this is uh, going to be a, a really difficult environment for uh, either bonds or equities under a Biden government. Most importantly of of all, of course, when we talk about Roaring Twenties is that we have vaccines that work, apparently work, probably 90% effectiveness for most of them. Uh, ones that work best in developed markets and ones that work at um, higher temperatures that will really suit emerging markets where supply chains aren't as are great for, for keeping stuff at minus 70 degrees. So we have vaccines that are going to mean that 2021 will see presumably the end of coronavirus as we're experiencing it at the moment. And we then think about all the pent-up demand that we're missing in the global economy over the last year or so, where the UK economy will finish, what, 8% lower? Um, It's smaller in size than it started the year. All the people will go out and want to travel again, go on holiday, buy new clothes, to replace the dressing gowns and tracksuits and old public image limited t-shirts like I'm wearing today and I'll go to gigs and I'll go to restaurants and spend money and they've got savings you know if you had a job you've had nothing to spend it on savings rates are at record not record highs but extremely elevated levels in the UK and elsewhere in developed markets and even in the US, where we've worried a lot about the plight of low paid US workers, where incomes for the poorer households have st- stagnated for a very long time, many of those have earned more via the stimulus checks they've received from the governments and they would have earned on their minimum wages. So they too have, have got some pent-up demand um, that can be spent in shops and, and travel and or delevering their balance sheets even, reducing the amount of debt. We saw second-hand car price inflation in the US go through the roof in recent uh, months and that's partly due to these savings that have been built up um, in, in the economy by people of all um, income levels. I do worry that the Roaring Twenties idea might be a little optimistic. You know, The markets are pricing in growth of 3.8% for the US in 2021, but there are still millions of people unemployed who weren't unemployed at the start of the year. In the UK, turning to the UK, we have 819,000 people who have been made redundant, made unemployed um, since coronavirus started. Some people have said... Actually, we shouldn't worry too much about this. If you look back at the 1980s, if you were worried about scarring and what economists call hysteresis, that's the idea that having millions of people out of work creates its own social problems and its own problems about skills being eroded that leads to a kind of um, vicious circle of more people losing their jobs and permanent scarring and long-term unemployment um, that, that leads to the economies not recovering in a way as you thought it w- would do. I think Mervyn King talked about this recently, and he pointed out that the difference is with the 1980s, where you certainly did have hysteresis and scarring, is that that was a, an era of manufacturing job losses. And if you have been put out of work in a, in a steel factory in a, in a town in the northeast or in Wales, or in Glasgow, outside Glasgow, then you know, you're not going to find another steel factory to go and work in nearby, and there is inertia around moving out of an area. You know millions of people did do it at that time. Uh, but you know, there was history then, because most of the jobs were manufacturing. People did lose skills by being out of the workforce. This time around it's much more about service sectors. Manufacturing jobs have um, stayed open financial services jobs too, but restaurants, pubs, shops, hospitality, holiday travel, all of those jobs um, have have lost those uh, work over the course of 2020. And that's one of the reasons the UK has been disproportionately hit by COVID is that we have a very high uh, dependency on service sectors relative to manufacturing compared to say Germany. Um, So there is an argument that actually, A lot of those skills will be transferable when the vaccine is widely available. All of the pubs, restaurants, shops will reopen again and those 819,000 people will walk back into jobs again. I do think that's a little optimistic. I think there's some truth in it. It won't be as bad as the 80s around manufacturing. There is transferability of skills in services, but it won't be as easy as people think. And I think that's because coronavirus has uncovered two significant trends that were already in place one is around online shopping versus bricks and mortar and we see this with Debenhams closing down Topshop Arcadia Group also closing down that's 25,000 jobs uh, between just those two um, two holding companies effectively have gone and they've not just gone because of Covid they've gone because young women shop at Boohoo and pretty little thing now rather than going into Topshop on the high street that buy it online, send back what they don't want. Um, Debenhams, the old department store model, is no longer attractive for for shoppers either. And the, the rise of online has been accelerated as a result of this. And so a lot of those places won't come back. And so not all those jobs will either. I also think the other trend that's been uncovered is really a working from home one, which is a bit more of a surprise. But the acceleration in technology over the past year available for companies means that people can work anywhere Uh, don't have to come into the expensive central London office space I went into our office yesterday um, and it's just completely dead in in the city of London at the moment Um, those office spaces some of them will come back some of them won't some of those pret a Manger's, you know the eight around our office will come back but at the moment only one of them's open and you know maybe one or two more will reopen but most most probably won't and so you do wonder about what that will do to wages as well and london wages it's not just those shops that service office workers but will companies think why why should i pay london wages to people why can't they work where they live from their desks and we don't pay rent and uh you know they can go and work in a cheap area of the uk and we'll pay them Cheaper wages, and then the next bit, the next step you go on from that is, well, why can't why they have to be in the UK at all? Why they have to be in the Southeast? Why can't they be elsewhere in the UK, or why why can't they be in India or Asia, somewhere where wages are incredibly low? So I think we will get good, decent, strong growth in twenty twenty one, but I think a lot of permanent damage has been done to the way that we organise our economy, uh, and changes have been done too. The final thing I'd say on this is, well. If we are going back to normal, what did normal look like before COVID? And let's just remind ourselves the reason I was buying government bonds in January last year wasn't because of COVID. It was for some of those reasons we talked about earlier on around demographics, technology, globalization, and central banks. But it was also about the general inability of central banks to hit their inflation targets. Um, We had massive disinflationary pressures. We had mediocre growth rates, below potential growth rates. We had Japanification. So the world before COVID was not a a, a booming, roaring 20s world. It was a world that was starting to look more and more like Japan with ageing populations, low potential growth rates. Um, I don't really fear the consensus is going to be wrong for 2021. You know, the 3.8% growth rate, I think could easily be achieved. We will, we will get a big bounce back next year. But the idea that we're, in, we're going into a decade of something changing to be altogether positive, I think, is probably over-optimistic and has kind of become the consensus. Let's move on and talk about debt burdens, something that I know most bond investors talk about and worry about a lot. just have my coffee out of my KLF mug. Um, UK debt to GDP is now over 100%. For the first time since 1960 um, and you know that was coming out of world war Two. I, mean, I think we should think about covid like a kind of existential wartime uh, economy in a way you spend what you need to do um, and you think about it afterwards um, i think that's the uh, politicians on the whole have done that and all, all power to them you know there hasn't been talk of austerity on the whole or the need to need to worry about debt to gdp ratios etc remember debt Developed market debt to GDP was already on the rise. The UK was already getting downgraded by some of the rating agencies on account of Brexit uncertainties. Um, and wider downgrades across the global economy are likely as a result of rising debt to GDP ratios. But there is a massive but. The massive but is that interest payments in the UK as a percentage of revenues, or tax takes effectively, are just 1.7%. So the amount that we're spending on our guilt coupons is pretty much the lowest ever in history you know we we also have the longest debt maturity profile in the world really thanks to pension fund demand for 30 year gilts and longer and uh, as a result of that we, we have a lot of fiscal flexibility we could do more fiscal spending not less and as long as rates stay low that isn't going to be a problem that's true across developed economies on the podcast in the past, we've talked, we had two episodes actually, if you want to go and listen to them, about Stephanie Kelton's The Deficit Myth, an important book over the course of the year, suggesting that governments can borrow a hell of a lot more than they are and effectively there isn't a limit for a government that prints its own currency. I've got a lot of um, issues with some of the, the conclusions there and we talk about them in the second podcast we did about The Deficit Myth book. Um, well, you know, there are some significant issues with the the, um, the premise of the book. But I do believe that there is a lot more room for more fiscal to spend on infrastructure, even think about basic income at the moment uh, for people who won't get back into the workforce or indeed more widely. So it doesn't become just a, an unemployment benefit. It becomes a kind of permanent safety net for everybody. Uh, I do worry, though, that without QE, markets will not be able to cope with the volume of issuance that we do at the moment, and as I said earlier, quantitative easing has effectively the amount being purchased by central banks covered most of the issuance by um, treasury departments, so the private sector hasn't had to get involved in mopping up all of this um, all of these bonds, and you know bond yields are not attractive for mutual funds or pension funds at the moment; they 'd much rather have credit. Effectively, So uh, the demand may not be there when the time comes and QE ends. Um, So there is a question if that happens, what if yields do start going up? What if that 1.7% that we have of revenues doubles, trebles as coupons gradually rise? As I say, because of the UK's debt profile, that will take a long time. For other countries, especially the US, where there's much more short-dated issuance, that might become a problem. And therefore, I think that at some point the idea of yield curve control or some other forward guidance from central bank is effectively implicit in what they're saying now they're not going to allow government bond yields to rise very much Morgan Stanley, note I was reading this morning, says that there's already implicit yield curve control in the Treasury market around the five-year point of of the yield curve. That could become explicit, effectively, as it was in the United States after World War II in the 50s uh, and early 60s. And that really pins down long-dated bond yields. That that does protect bond investors to some extent from capital losses related to bond yields selling off. But it won't protect them from inflation effectively. So, inflation, real returns could be lower as a result of this. So, you don't lose any money from your bonds selling off because they're pinned down. Uh, you know, prices aren't allowed to fall. But um, you could see the value of your returns eroded by inflation above historic or, you know, recent inflation targets. So, debt burden's not just true for governments, but also true for corporates as well. Economist article at the moment saying that UK, US sorry, business debt has gone up from 75% of GDP to around 90% of GDP, so almost in line with government debt to GDP, 90%, uh, over 100% for the US government. And there's been record amount of issuance this year from US investment grade corporates, around $1.5 trillion worth of bonds. High yield default rates have risen, so around 6% for the US, 4%. For the EU, huge rise in fallen angels as well, including names like Ford, um, that have been supported by central bank support, and you know that's, that's the important thing to remember when we think about, um, think about valuations in credit. Central banks are still there. Um, the Bank of England ended its purchases of uh, credit, but you know the backstop is still there for pretty much all central banks. They've. Reduce collateral requirements. They're offering cheap loans for companies and equity markets are buoyant as well. Asset valuations are high. All of that presumably will will support credit valuations too. But those valuations have changed dramatically. I remember in March the peak of the sell-offs investment grade credit was at 400 basis points over government bonds for the developed market IG. Uh, high yield it was all trading as distressed at over a thousand and that's pricing in default rates of something like 20% for investment grade uh, high yield 50% remember the worst ever year for uh, investment grade defaults was under two percent I think so to say it's going to be 10 times worse than um, it's ever been in in history was probably a a big big stretch and for that reason lots and lots of buying of corporate bonds from across the board um, in March April May And we're now back down to spread levels that are the same as they were in January. Those January spread levels were the same as they were in 2007, immediately before the global financial crisis. So the valuations are no longer as attractive as they were. I still think that for most areas of credit, you're overcompensated for default risk. There are areas of triple C rated high yield bonds where that isn't the case which is relatively rare. So flashing amber signals in bits of the credit markets. And remember there is a value to that central bank safety net that we talked about earlier, that wasn't there in January, but is now. We know that there is a backstop that won't allow corporations and businesses to suffer as a result of a a, a dislocation in corporate bond markets. So I think they're they're gonna be still supporting corporate bonds. But we're also seeing that new issue premia have have disappeared as well compared to what they were in March, April, May, where you're getting paid 40 or 50 basis points more than uh, secondary market issues and credit. That's fallen to around 10. So the absolute valuations aren't there like they were. The new issue premia are not there like they were either. So generally not as attractive area of the market as they used to be. Let's quickly talk about emerging markets. Obviously, you've seen all, all year long the headlines have been kind of unrelentingly negative. Zambia defaulting, Turkish lira collapsing and political instability. Uh, obviously, China, the epicentre of Covid at the start of the year. But um, we did see emerging market debt sell off in the, at the same time as credit did in March, April, May. It didn't really rally, though, like credit did afterwards in Q2 and Q3. And partly that's because there wasn't a central bank, you know, the ECB didn't do QE in emerging market debt. The Fed didn't say it would carry on buying South African bonds uh, like it did with Ford bonds, so they didn't have that rally. But the rally has started in full effect really from October onwards, with November being a huge month for emerging market bonds and indeed the currencies as well. Um, people had feared that COVID would hit emerging markets more hard than developed markets, but in some ways that that wasn't the case. Um, partly because the demographics are way better in emerging markets; they have much younger populations. That areas like Africa, where you'd think that healthcare wasn't as advanced as say uh, Italy, experienced way lower death rates because younger people survived this virus, um, and the response was better than expected. Um, both. Politically, you look at Vietnam and how it closed its borders, and Vietnam has got almost no cases at the moment. There were exceptions, of course. Brazil was one of those. Brazil had the worst, uh, one of the worst responses in, in the whole world, and right wing populists in general have got the worst COVID um, death rates in, in the world. Um, so, Brazilian real was down 30% against the US dollar. see Mexico down 20% of the US dollar. So, when it came to October this year, people saw that they could buy local currency, emerging market bonds with real yields, inflation adjusted yields of two, three, or four percent, at in currencies that themselves had fallen from ten to thirty percent over the course of the year. And that compares with two percent negative real yields in bond markets, for instance. So suddenly the momentum and the flows and the, the, the expectations of a global economic recovery have led to a big, big rally in emerging market bonds this year that's probably been justified given uh, their starting points for yields in the middle of the year. The final bond asset class I'm going to quickly touch on today is really inflation, inflation-linked bonds. These could be UK inflation-linked bonds, which obviously had their big change this year, with the announcement that RPI is going to disappear as a measure and be harmonised with the CPI housing measure. Um, late, you know, two thousand and twenty on sorry two thousand and thirty onwards. Uh, some expectation that was going to be 2025 and the markets got a bit worried about that. That didn't happen though, uh, but it still a big change for the UK linker market. Things I've been looking at are US, US inflation really, because in March, who remembers now that oil went sharply negative in that month? And as a result of that and coronavirus and the slowdown in the global economy, inflation expectations at five years in the US fell from 1.5% all the way down to 0.2%. Um, that looked ridiculously low, given the fed 's inflation target of two percent and indeed since then we 're all the way back up to to nearly two percent at five, at the five year measure and just below two percent at the thirty year measure so markets are starting to price in hope that the Fed gets back to its inflation target of around about two percent. Remember they are targeting though two and a quarter two and a half percent inflation at the moment under their average inflation targeting. Regime, so it's possible that those tips have a little bit further to go relative to nominal bonds. I haven't got the energy to talk about Brexit in any detail. Um, I hope by the time you hear this, we will have found out that we have a deal uh, and a free trade area, and that we don't have to worry about big tariffs on imports and exports. Um, I, I just I'm not going to go into that, but I do, I do like Robert Hutton, who's a, a journalist who writes. Spy novels and well spy books and stuff like that. Um, worth looking up on Twitter. Robert Dot Hutton um, is his Twitter handle. Anyway, his his quote about Brexit is, um, what was Brexit like? America's in de- declaration of independence. A man leaving a golf club but demanding to still be allowed into the bar. Over the years, I went through a few analogies, but the one that persisted was of a married man who's for years enjoyed casually flirting with a work colleague. One evening, he makes his traditional half-hearted pass, and instead of rolling her eyes, she replies, Go on, then. A month later, he's living out of his car and negotiating through lawyers to see his children one weekend a month, and he can't really tell you how it happened. Anyway, that's all I'm going to say on on that. My books of the year, we talked about the deficit myth, talked about also... um, how I don't think it's uh, as much of this free option as perhaps people think it is or as Stephanie Kelton would like people to think it is. But it's well worth reading. It's an interesting book. Also a shout out to Angry Nomics by Eric Lonergan and Mark Blythe, Um, a book about populism and how that has impacted economics and social outcomes and how people have just got angry and how they relate that to football violence and nationalism and all of these... Horrible things we've we've talked about over the course of the last couple of years with Trump and Brexit and so forth. One I haven't read yet that I intend to put on my reading list for 2021 is a book uh, co-authored by Charles Goodhart around demographics, and I think that looks pretty interesting and may give us some clues about the future path of inflation. Because you know, a lot of us thought that as populations aged, actually, while there is this big demand for fixed income, at the same time as that. Once somebody becomes a consumer of goods rather than a producer of goods, surely that should have an inflationary impact. That hasn't happened in Japan, but I look forward to, to reading Charles Goodhart's book uh, about this to see what he has to say about it. Uh, but finally, my absolute book of the year was um, I, I do try and get the KLF in twice in podcasts now, having only managed it once in the previous few podcasts. but. Uh, John Higgs wrote a book about the KLF uh, a few years ago and as a result of that I discovered his other books. This year's book is called The Future Starts Here. He's kind of, you find yourself turning over the corner of pretty much every page in the book because there's something interesting in there um, around universal basic income and robotics and AI. Um, Some original thoughts in there about the value of nursing jobs and refuge collecting jobs that isn't currently recognised, but that AI may help recognise. Some really interesting stuff about Generation Z as, as well. And uh, he wrote about watching The Breakfast Club. I, I watched this uh, recently as well on Netflix or Amazon Prime or something like that. He said he sat down with some Generation Z. That's the you know the one that came after the Millennials in terms of age cohort, and was just um, he saw how they reacted to The Breakfast Club, which is the same way as I reacted to now, having thought it was a good film at the time, you're now kind of shocked by it. It, it, Everything has changed in that film um, and who you're rooting for is different. And in the Generation X control group he looked at, they were all rooting for the principal of the school. He's just a good man trying to do a difficult job and coming in on a Saturday um, to look after children. He doesn't want to be there either. So just the change in attitudes that will feed through into the economy um, and the global system. So everything he writes is interesting. He's got another new book coming out next year. Uh, John Higgs, The Future Starts Here. Really recommend his books, especially on about the KLF, uh, the best band in the world ever. So this ends Series 2 of uh, Uncle Jim's World of Bonds. A special long edition also means I'm not going to be doing anything else uh, until January sometime when I will start Series 3. Thank you for everyone who's listened to me over the course of the last two series. Have a great and happy new year, everyone. Bye.